I'd like to talk about a problem that we still have in America, the issue of race. So I'll start with a joke. A priest giving a sermon on Jesus' command to love your enemies says, let's have a show of hands. How many of you have many enemies? Lots of hands go up. Okay, now raise your hands if you have only a few enemies. There's a little less hands. And then he says, see, most of us feel like we have enemies. Now raise your hands if you have no enemies at all. He looks around. Everyone's looking around. There's one person who says, I have no enemies. What a blessing. How old are you? I'm 98 years old. And I have no enemies, says the man. Come on up here and tell us about how in the world it is that you don't have any enemies. What an exemplary Christian life you lead. Tell us how you have no enemies. All the bastards have died. I don't, think, I don't think that's what we're going for, guys. I really question whether I should say that bad word here. Uh, that's a bad word. Don't say it. Okay. Matthew 5, 43 and following. Listen to the words of Jesus. You have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both evil and good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Verse 46 of Matthew 5. If you love only those who love you... What reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. This is the word of the Lord. That is the correct response. It would be difficult for me to track the whole history of the tenuous relationship that this country has to the topic of racism. It would take quite a while, and I don't feel equipped for that task, but I will get you caught up on the last couple of years, maybe, not even, really, briefly. If you're wondering what's going on, a few years back, I guess last year in Charleston, a 21-year-old young man named Dylan Roof walked into a Bible study in a Methodist church in Charleston. He sat for an hour discussing scripture with these saints before pulling out a handgun and murdering nine of them. His stated goal was to incite racial conflict in our country. His hope was that there would be violent backlash 
from the black community toward white people, that that would then bring moderate whites who are implicitly racist over to the more extreme white supremacist position. His goal was to divide the country along racial lines. The family of some of the slain people immediately responded with forgiveness in the name of Jesus on the basis of their faith. One of the other consequences of this killing of the Charleston Nine was that because Dylan displayed a Confederate flag in some of his social media posts, I read his whole manifesto, I also read a lot about white supremacy and their thinking going back to the Nazi movement, and I spent some of the week sipping on poison essentially through my computer, and it has been a troubling week for me. I feel ill-equipped to talk about this, and I feel somewhat um, just sad um, seeing how normal people believe terrible things, which becomes the justification for doing terrible things. Normal people. It's real easy for us to demonize Nazis and white supremacists and say, well, they're just bad people. No, they're normal people who believe terrible things, and therefore they're, they're enabled to do yes. terrible things. Anyway, one of the consequences of Dylan's wrapping himself in the Confederate flag is that there has been then the removal of Confederate monuments from public spaces across uh, the United States. Not a ton, but enough that it's caused um, the back, a kind of backlash that Dylan Roof wants. At least I should say, so far as, unless he's repented, you know, he's in prison. Um... Then you had the Unite the Right conference or rally or whatever you want to call it more recently. And then counter-protests cropped up to try to say that KKK, white nationalists, etc., they're not okay in the United States. This is not cool. James Alex Fields got into his car and plowed into a crowd of counter-protesters killing Heather Heyer and injuring 19 others. Of course, then, news media, social media is fixated on this topic. But this issue goes much deeper. Um, Many of you, you, all I have to do is say some phrases and you will have associated thoughts and feelings. Black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter, make America great again, race baiting, class war, unrest, distrust, shouting past each other, without listening, and of course, more recently, the accusation that if you don't condemn, then you're somehow, if you don't hate, you're somehow making a moral equivalence. We can have this conversation. I assume that this message, which is not really a message, is going to spark conversation. I hope that happens. I told my boys this morning that the kingdom of the world is flying upside down. When you're in an airplane, the reason that there are dials and measures on the dash of the airplane to show you the horizon, to show you your pitch, to show you your altitude and so forth is because humans are easily deceived by their senses. 
You can be flying upside down, pointed at the ground, but you will feel like you are right side up, flying along, horizontal. Which is, so this is, why, this is the point of these tools, these instruments on the plane. Scripture, particularly Jesus and his sayings, orient us the right way, and they reveal that humanity is flying upside down. I want to just sort of suppose that even though I'm shocked that in 2017 white supremacists could come out in public and gain enough of a following to unite the right, that was the title of the gathering, Unite the Right. Even though I'm shocked that this could happen in 2017, I probably shouldn't be, given what Scripture teaches about this age or this world versus the kingdom of God. And I find that many of us who name Jesus are actually hoping in earthly political solutions to practical real-world problems because we don't have faith in Jesus' sayings and doings to be the answer We actually think that someone else has more insight when it gets practical. Or we use phrases like, well, in the real world, loving your enemies isn't going to work. But what I see is when we don't let Jesus be Lord of our reactions, we become a monster in order to defeat a monster. We adopt resentment and hate in order to squash out resentment and hate. Don't hear me making a moral equivalence argument, by the way. Sins have different depth. It seems to me that there's so much of our thinking in America that's based on being right. If you agree with me, you're right, and therefore we're the, we're the good guys. If you disagree with me, you're wrong, and you're one of the bad guys. And the obvious solution to the problems in the world is for everyone to become like me. This reminds me of what Jesus said about those in his generation. He said, you guys say if we'd have been around in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have treated the, the prophets that way. And what Jesus is saying is, you're not aware of yourself. To take the issue of race and racism and push it off onto some extreme KKK white supremacists instead of recognizing that it's a systemic part of the culture of our nation that we're all participating in. Well, I don't need to finish the sentence because I think you know where I'm headed with that. I never owned slaves, but it's easier for me to get a mortgage because I'm white. I'm less frightened at traffic stops because I'm white. More likely to be able to get a good job because I'm white. I don't feel guilty about this. But surely I can admit this and admit that there's something wrong. It seems like the the tools of our culture 
for fixing social problems are very loud, pushy, calling your senator, give him a piece of your mind, tweeting a lot, uh, usually at the president lately, pro or for, you know, either for or against or something. Like, whatever it is, it's loud. It's pushy. It's divisive. Do you know what I mean? It's virtue signaling. It's shaming on both sides. And by the both sides, I'm not, again, trying to say, but I mean, by both sides, I'm talking about left and right. I'm not talking about racist versus non-racist. Let's assume that there are people on the political left and people on the political right who are horrified by racism. But the way we capitalize in this divided nation on almost every issue that comes up is to entrench ourselves deeper against other people. This is what I'm seeing. Volume, power. These are the tools that fall under the heading of the kingdoms of this world, power over. The New Testament calls it the sword. When you say, well, how is manipulation and shame the sword? There's different kinds of power over. They're not all explicitly violent. But the kingdom uses power under to serve in love. And this world will use power over to control, usually rooted out of fear. One of my heroes is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And one of the reasons I have a lot of respect for his social activism is because his social activism on the issue of civil rights for black citizens of this nation was not rooted merely in self-interest for him and his people. It was rather rooted in a deep gospel awareness that everyone's created in the image of God and that in Christ there's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave nor free. There's no male nor female. So his, his work for civil rights was as much rooted in delivering racists from the oppression of their ideology as it was delivering black people into a place of dignity and respect. In other words, it's undignified to humans to be racist. And he wanted to deliver the racist from their hatred, not just his color people from being oppressed. Am I making any sense? His commitment to justice, biblical justice, by the way, not American, Western, black and white movie justice, where the bad guys die and the good guys celebrate. Biblical justice, where things are set right. Restorative justice. His, Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s commitment to justice got him in trouble with other civil rights leaders. He would picket wars he felt were unjustified. And they were like, why are you changing the topic? The only topic that matters to us is our mistreatment in the United States. And he said, either justice matters to everyone everywhere or it doesn't really matter. And this brings up a point that I want to... I'm going to get a little intellectual here for a second. Please forgive me if that's bothering you. If you turn off your brain and you say, I don't know what he's talking about. Well, don't. Come back. But Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did not, did not use violence to stop violence. Neither did Gandhi. And both of these political activists 
did this because they actually had more respect for the teachings of Jesus than many people who claim Jesus as Lord. I just find that unusual that a Hindu would take Jesus more seriously than a believer. But it's true that many believers, people who call themselves Christians, view the sayings of Jesus as being naive at best and more than likely completely unlivable, unworkable. So I want to talk about ethical forms just for a moment. There's three basic ethical schools of thought. There's deontological ethics, consequentialist ethics, and virtue ethics. I'm sure there's more, but these are the big three. I'm not pointing this out to insult people who think differently than me, but I think it's helpful for us to get a basic grid when we're assessing actions to go, oh, you're using that form of ethical reasoning. So deontological ethics, rules. Deontological ethics is rules. If an action violates the rules, it's not ethical. If an action fulfills the rules, it is ethical. So Robin Hood is wrong because he violated theft rules in order to help the poor on the basis of deontological ethics. Consequentialist ethics is concerned about outcomes, consequences. Consequentialist, outcomes. Deontological, rules. Consequentialist ethics says the ends is what justifies the means. If a course of action results in improvement, it is ethical. If an action does not improve the outcome, it is unethical. This means Robin Hood is right because though his action violated the rules, the outcome was more justice for more people and, then re- and resistance of the exploitations of the greedy wealthy. Consequentialism is compatible with the belief that if lying, stealing, and killing, and even hating result in better outcomes for more people, those may be morally justified. Third option is virtue ethics. I've probably lost many of you already, but deontological rules. Consequentialist outcomes. Virtue ethics is, is concerned with character. Virtue ethics say that it is wrong to do evil in order that good may result. In order to achieve good, the means to achieve good must themselves be good. Virtue ethics. I hold to virtue ethics. Just war theory is a form of consequentialist ethics, which says if we can save our people's lives, then even though killing millions of civilians is horrifying, we may feel compelled and justified in dropping bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's consequentialist thinking. Uh, Mennonites historically have been biblicist. And what that means is we simply do what the New Testament teaches. It doesn't need to be really interpreted much. It doesn't need to be thought through deeply. Just do what it says. Do whatever the New Testament says. Um, Biblicist thinking says the Old Testament is no longer in charge of us. The New Testament is in charge of us, so we don't have to worry about the issues of the contradictions between the covenants, because the Bible is full of contradictions. I will go on record and say that. Jesus started our sermon out by saying, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. That would be a contradiction. All right? Not all contradictions undermine the integrity of the person who's contradicting. Right. But Mennonites have historically been biblicist, which means... We're deontological thinkers historically. We just follow the rules that Jesus laid down. We don't have to understand them. We just do them. God said it, makes him right. 
Which, incidentally, to me, that's... that's mm, okay, that's an aside. Talk to me later about how much I struggle with the violence in the Old Testament, because I struggle with it. I don't like it. I have question marks beside it. It seems to me that Mennonite biblicism in the Old Testament is pretty comfortable killing pagans, but suddenly we're pretty comfortable loving them. And I want us to go deeper than merely doing what the Bible says. I want us to understand God's character. I want us to understand why. I feel like the Lord is not honored when we are sort of just settled into, we'll just do what it says. Because, all right. I'm reining myself in a lot here. Sorry if this is too theoretical, but you've got deontological, deontological rules, consequentialist, ends is justifies the means, and virtue, which says you've got to be loving, not just have loving goals. What I see happening a lot and I don't mean in the church because I don't know that I've had deep, many deep conversations among us on this topic. But what I see in my social media perusals, I follow a lot of people on Twitter that you guys would probably say, well, they're liberals, Tim. I know, but I like them. But what I see is a lot of consequentialist thinking. It's perfectly acceptable to hate people as long as they're wrong. It's perfectly fine to shame and hate and resent people as long as they're wrong. I don't watch Fox News or I would probably say the same thing about conservatives. I tend to veer toward no radio. And when I do, I dabble slightly in NPR because they have real story hour and things. What's that thing where they just, the moth? I love that stuff. I read Google News for my news, which draws from everybody. That way I can be distrustful of everybody equally. (laughs) So much bias. Like, just admit it. Just say, just start your article. I don't like the president. What you're going to hear is going to reflect that. I think the president's great no matter what he does. What I'm about to say will reflect that. Just start it out. I don't think there's objective people left. But what I'm seeing is, as I'm perusing our country's climate, I actually feel like, as I was reading the Nazi literature, we are so close to having that same sort of opportunity to get pulled into the level of ideological hatred justified on ground. On like, maybe that sounds crazy to you, but what I'm hearing in the Nazi literature I've read sounds just like the stuff I read on the alt-right websites. Just like it. So I'm not all that happy. This is so much rambling, guys. I'm going to have to figure out a way to like just come to some basic conclusions. I love Jesus. I'm convinced that the gospel's true and that he's the answer to my problem with sin, to yours, and to our societies. I'm convinced that the gospel does not just reconcile us to God but it reconciles us to each other. I'm deeply saddened that Scripture has been used to justify slavery and racism, it ha- and it has been used to justify a lot of wicked things. But I want to read you Ephesians chapter 2, 
For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He has united Jews and Gentiles into one people. Well, that's an interesting idea. In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. You ever thought about that? I know we've thought about this cross breaks down the wall of enmity with God. But Paul is very clearly saying this cross broke down racial hostilities. And he made Jews and Gentiles, by the way, those are the only two classifications the New Testament really knows about. <laughs> you're either Jewish or you're out, you know? And, and now you're in. Jewish or not. Created one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated this. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. And he made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Which, by the way, is why I get annoyed when I hear people talk about Messianic Christians as opposed to Gentile Christians. I'm like, it doesn't happen. You're wrong. We're all Messianic now. There's no such thing as Jewish Christians as opposed to Gentile Christians. Maybe culturally that would be true. You could divide those things culturally, but it would be, if you make too much of it, a major violation of the essence of what Jesus accomplished. One church, one people. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Dylan Root shot nine innocent saints at a prayer meeting in the hopes that he would be able to get the United States citizens everywhere to feel different from each other on the basis of race. To get moderates who were like, I'm white, and I want my little white children to be with safe white children. I read his little essay. His little essay disturbed me. It said, white people are implicitly racist while claiming not to be because they pull their children out of urban schools to keep them away from the dangerous black children with their low income and their high crime rates and their high drug use. Interesting. His goal was to get us to identify ourselves along these racial divisions. And I'll say Satan's goal where Jesus is removing those distinctions and divisions so that we look upon each other as people. Instead of looking upon Garth and saying, oh, he's white. I'm supposed to look upon Garth and say, oh, he's Garth. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream was not that one day little black children would be left alone. His dream was not us versus them, but we. As long as there is an us and a them, I'm pretty sure Satan's strategy is working. Because in Christ, there's no longer an us or a them. 
There's only we. I can sort of feel like, you know, he's white. What, what right does Tim have to even talk to this issue? I actually don't claim a right to speak to this issue on the basis of my knowledge. If I lowered uh, my preaching to the level of what I truly understand or live, it would be a sad day for everyone. <laughs> I'm not preaching me. I'm preaching Jesus and his truth. But I don't know. I feel like somehow practically it would be helpful for us not to get sucked into the anger. Posting opposing hashtags. So that when some of our friends post Black Lives Matter hashtags, we don't feel compelled to then say Blue Lives Matter or All Lives Matter. Of course All Lives Matter. I think maybe a better response would be to befriend that person and hear what they're saying and why. To somehow actually heal the divide, not counter-react to the divide by deepening it. I don't know. You guys talk back, you know. Text me, Facebook me, whatever it is that you do. Communicate with me ideas that we can affirm this gospel reality. That in Christ, these racial distinctions don't end up as divisions. The distinctions I want to keep, and the reason I want to keep them is because they're beautiful. At the end of history, here's what I mean. I didn't used to think that until I heard a Native, Native American believer talk about one of the most precious passages of Scripture for him was in the book of Revelation where it says at the end of history every tongue, tribe, nation, people, and language will gather around the throne and worship Jesus together. And he said, I like that Jesus doesn't erase the distinctions, but he treasures them and celebrates them. Isn't that cool? Cultural and racial and ethnic diversity is awesome. Now, by the way, white supremacy is not an ethnic diversity issue. It's a sin issue. It's an unkingdom of God ideological issue that's to be repented of and discarded. All right, all right, that's enough. That's enough. I'm going to reread the passage of, Ma- of Jesus saying, love each other. This time I'm going to read it in the message. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend. And its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that, says Jesus. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let your enemies bring out the best in you. Not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone, regardless, good or bad, Nice or nasty? If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner can do that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom, citizens. Now live 
like it. Live out of your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. Amen? Amen. Well, take good care of each other. And do give me feedback. How can we creatively put practical legs to be a part of the solution and not just a part of the sort of social media like, well, I agree with this because this is what's right. And I'm, see everybody who's my friend on Twitter? See how right I am? I'm so right. You can like me and respect me. Mm, cares about your stupid ego and your pride and being right. How can we enact love in real world terms that bridges these divides? Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Go in peace.